Welcome, welcome. This is the Enlightenment Show, and I'm your host, Laurie Schoenfeld. Our guest today is Barbara Graham, author of What Jonah Knew. We're going to be chatting with her today all about her new release and the special bond that she treasures with her son. Welcome, Barbara. So excited to have you here with us. And I'm thrilled to talk to you, Laurie. So we're, we're all good here. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to have fun. I loved your book, and I'm really excited to dive into the layers of what came to be this beautiful creation of what Jonah knew. What is something right now in your world, Barbara, that is wondrous to you? That's wondrous? Well, I'm sitting here. I live in California, and I live in Northern California in West Marin County, and I'm you can't see it, but I'm sitting out and looking at magnificent, magnificent trees um, that I love and that these trees are really sort of my teachers in life because the leaves just kind of the way right now they're fluttering very lightly and um, they're, they're, I would, I like to flutter lightly the way the trees do. That's my aspiration. Anyway, that's one thing I'm looking at. And, and the wonder is also we're in a serious drought. So one hopes that we can maintain this magnificence. Mm -hmm. I love trees too. They tell such a story, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. And I'm very lucky to be, we're kind of high up and just have a great panorama of, of really gorgeous trees. So yeah. And they're all connected and they talk to each other and communicate and the underground communication among them, you know, we, sh we should be so lucky as humans to have similar, um, you know, communication because it's pretty amazing. Mm hmm. 100% yeah. agree with yeah. you. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners and viewers what Jonah knew is all about? Absolutely. So the novel, What Jonah Knew, it's about two mothers and their sons. They don't know one another. Uh, Helen is a baker who lives in upstate New York. And her beloved 22-year-old musician son, Henry, suddenly disappears at the start of the novel. And Lucy um, is another mother, and her young son, Jonah, who's quite young, when he's about three or four, starts making strange comments about, he says, do I have another mom, and I have another house, and I have a dog, and... His parents think, oh, sweetheart, you have such a brilliant creative imagination. How wonderful that is. So the, the lives of these two families of Helen and Henry, Helen is on a real search for Henry. And Lucy is trying to understand, you know, what's going on with Jonah. When he begins having night terrors, pretty severe night terrors, she wonders if perhaps he is carrying some vestige of inherited family trauma, inherited from her family members who were killed in the Holocaust. And she's a health editor at a women's magazine. So she's 
researching epigenetics and, and the epigenetic studies are incredible. So at a certain point in the novel, the lives of these two families overlap and in very surprising and ultimately pretty perilous ways, putting Jonah's life in grave danger. Mm. The feeling and emotion that you brought in with both mothers and their love for their sons and the connections that they're trying to find yeah, was so enthralling. And I connected so much as a mom, as well as a mom with the son of really trying to be on this mystery and hunt and search yeah. to figure out that connective piece as well. Yeah, I mean, I am the mother of a son um, and have been much of my life. I became a mom when I was 23, which is on the young side by today's standards, historically, not at all. But, you know, among sort of educated women, usually children come a little bit later after careers get launched these days. Um, so I have spent my life, or it feels like, most of my life, um, truly being, walking the tightrope that moms do between this fierce love and attachment and wanting everything good for your child. I mean, it's true of mothers and daughters, it's true of fathers too, I think, but, and having to let go and having to surrender control because they are on their own trajectory, they're on their own path, they make their own choices. So it's, I think being a parent is you spend your life walking this razor's edge between trying to protect and letting go and trying to protect and letting go right at this very moment as we speak, my son, and my granddaughter, uh, who live in Italy, are flying in. They've been flying since, I don't, God knows, for about the last 19 hours, they had to change in two different airports or through, they've been at three airports. Anyway, you know, this, the, this bond, I find it stretches as they get older because there are distances and, so much more that you cannot control and and but it, it doesn't it, it it remains as strong as ever so i've written a lot about motherhood and i can't help it because it's been such a driving central piece of my own life mm -hmm. though i i just want to point out the story of what jonah knew is in no way autobiographical. It's not my story. It's a story that came to me um, after I did some research when I was uh, writing a magazine article many years ago. So it's not my story, but the emotional feelings of these two mothers, Helen and Lucy, toward their sons are, are absolutely authentic. So on that level, it reflects my own emotions, but the story itself is not my story. Mm -hmm. I really loved how you brought in protect and surrender, Barbara. Mm -hmm. 
do you feel like on your own journey that ever goes away or do you just stretch differently? <laughs> you know, the surrendering becomes more and more essential. Otherwise, you could really go mad because you you don't have control. We don't really have control over anything, but you know, there are some things that we have some degree of control over some of the time. Um, as my son got older, there certainly has been more surrender, but probably no less caring <laughs> about the outcome because the bond is so strong, the love is so deep. So you care your whole heart out as you are letting go more and more. And it, it's, it is the dance of, of parenthood. Um, and I don't think you quite know it until you become a parent uh, yourself. It seems to me, it's certainly I didn't um, until I became a parent. So I don't know about you. No, my three kids are teenagers now. And I remember when they were little thinking, like, is it going to always hurt this much to let go? And now with them being teens, I realize like the feeling is still there, just different with the stage. Like, right. I still want to just hold them and take care of them and make sure they're okay. Right. You want to sort of lock, put them in a closet. <laughs> and then they start driving. And then, I mean, I don't, I can't tell you how many nights I spent by the window or, you know, listening for the car to pull into the driveway, that sort of thing. It just, it changes as they change and grow older. But, you know, the when the love is so strong, you adapt and you surrender more and more and you care just as much. At least that's my experience. <laughs> Where did you get the idea of a six-year-old connecting to a missing person? So years ago, I was writing magazine articles. I was a playwright. I was writing memoir, but I also had to earn a living. So I was um, writing for a lot of women's magazines at the time. So I was assigned an article by Self Magazine to do a story on past life regression therapy. And I went to a workshop, I was living in New York at the time, went to a workshop on the Upper West Side with a very well-known past life regression therapist, a Jungian psychologist named Roger Wolger, who wrote a book called Other Lives, Other Cells. Lying on the floor, he does this sort of hypnotic regression. Everyone around me is having a big, deep experience you know, someone is Joan of Arc, somebody, I, you know, everybody is, someone was throwing up, they were having such a deep experience, literally nothing happened for me. And I thought, okay, but I still had to write the magazine story. So I went and, and met with Roger Wolger privately, had a private session with him, went in there and said, you know, I'm really sorry, I have to apologize in advance, I'm not hypnotizable. You're, I'm going to be your first failure as a subject. Um, so I go in there. I don't know how this happened. The next thing I knew, I have a vision of a woman who I took to believe my, be myself, 
being killed in a concentration camp. And it was harrowing, terrifying, incredibly distressing. I think I cried for about three days afterward. It was really, really powerful, but I didn't know how, I didn't know what it meant exactly. I mean, what was this? Was this real? I'd always been really pretty obsessed with the Holocaust from a very early age. I read every book about the Nazis I could and the Jews that I could get my hands on. So I went a few days later after the session and saw my own therapist. And I expected him to say, you know, want me to explore the symbolic meaning of what I saw. Instead, he handed me a book, which I have over there, called 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. Um, this is a book by Ian Stevenson, MD. He was, at the time, the chair of psychiatry at the University of Virginia Medical School, had for decades, decades, been studying children with spontaneous recall of a previous life. The studies were focused on kids because these were kids who started talking spontaneously. They could, you know, unprompted by their parents all over the world. By that time, he'd amassed about 2,500 cases. These kids spoke about their deaths. They had, I mean, it was very striking and I can talk more about that material. So that blew me away. And around the same time, I was, I was listening to a number of Tibetan Buddhist teachers going to talks with Tibetan Buddhist teachers and they talk about past and future lives like last Thanksgiving and next, you know, 4th of July. So all of these things kind of came together in my mind and the idea for what Jonah knew just came to me as a kind of download while walking down the street in New York. Mm, I love that. And is there, so I'm curious about, you know, when you have deja vu, you know, where you feel like you've been places or you feel like you have run into something or you smell something that does not, you know, at this yeah. time in your life, you've never done that but it yeah. feels so organically in your body, like you know it. Yeah. Did you recognize any of that when you were um, going through that the regression? Mm. Um, honestly, I don't remember. I, it was so strong. Mm. I would have to say yes, but I can't say exactly what, though I've had many experiences of you know, that kind of deja vu, what feels like a memory, like I've been here, I know you, this is so familiar. And I think, you know, they may not be able to be established necessarily in clinical trials, but I think that there's some, there, there's some real resonance and that we carry so much more knowledge than we or our bodies do than we actually um, are aware of. What's interesting about Ian Stevenson's case and the research is ongoing and it's being led by Jim Tucker at the University of Virginia. And there are many people who are who do past life regression with kids and with adults where I think there's real um, authentic 
experiences. I, I, I you know, I, I don't dismiss the past life regression experiences. You may not be able to prove them in quite the same way, but um, you know, there's there's so much resonance in these experiences that people have that it really does suggest that there is more to our human existence than the materialist view of the universe might suggest, that consciousness extends beyond our lifetimes. And, and many people aren't aware of it, and maybe they don't need to be aware of it. One of the things that's really striking in Stevenson's cases are these kids with the memories have often, you know, have phobias associated with the manner of death. They describe the manner of death. I mean, I'm talking about two, three, and four-year-olds who will describe exactly how they died. They say they got stabbed. Some of them, Stevenson did a whole book on birthmarks, will have a birthmark that corresponds to the manner of death. So wow. I know, isn't that incredible? Mm -hmm. so, so the research, you know, gives some credence. I mean, there's so many people in the scientific world who, you know, poo-poo all of this, but this research gives some real credence to it, um, real credibility, I think. Mm -hmm. The relationship between both Helen and Henry and Lucy and Jonah was so beautiful and different in its own way. What were things that you loved about both of their relationships with their sons? Um, well, they were so different, as you say, because Helen and Henry, who's who changed their names at a certain point in their lives from, from Alice and Danny to Helen and Henry and Henry at Henry slash Danny at age five, picked their na last name to be bird because Helen was in a, a very abusive relationship and they ran away when Henry was five. And it was, on his fifth birthday when, or right after his fifth birthday, when his father actually hit him for the first time and Helen, she was out of there. So they changed their names and ran away. So in a way they were survivors and scrappers and um, Helen had to completely reinvent herself, her life, find a career, move to a place as far away from the abusive father as possible. So they they were kind of this unit that I think single parents often feel of two. They were just two, uh, two together and two against the world. There was that kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. With Lucy and Jonah, you know, Lucy lives in pretty privileged circumstances in New York City. Her husband's an ophthalmologist, Matt, Jonah's father. Lucy has this job at the magazine. They're both extremely devoted parents. The circumstances in which they live are not in any way akin to what Helen and Henry went through. It's a very loving, nurturing family. So when Jonah you know, who 
exhibit some anxiety from a very early age and the night terrors and these strange statements he makes, you know, Lucy's quest be, becomes to try, oh no, another, I'm sorry, there, I, I'm looking at this big glass window and I've lately been keeping the shades down. I don't have them down right now because two birds have flown into them in the last few days and died. Oh. And I just saw one heading for the window, but fortunately it veered off to the side and it makes me so sad. So anyway, but I'm not gonna close the shades until we're off the, <laughs> off the, off the call. But anyway, so Lucy's quest, Matt sort of, Jonah was born preterm, Matt, her husband, who's very scientific and doctory kind of, uh, you know, attributes his, you know, night terrors, his creative imagination, his strange statements to, you know, his nervous system working out the kinks, being preterm. Mm -hmm. Lucy is searching for answers to, you know, here's the most nurturing environment. You know, you talk about nature versus nurture, the most nurturing possible environment, what could be causing this little boy's distress? So she looks into inherited family trauma. And then, you know, is she is Jonah tapping into Jung's, you know, collective unconscious and picking up something? And then they go up to Aurora Falls, which is where Helen lives, and is still searching for her missing son. And you know, suddenly Jonah seems to know all this stuff about Henry, Helen's missing son. So where where does that come from? So Lucy is on this quest, not so much shared by by her husband. So their lives are very different, but then they overlap when they all are in the same place and, you know, more strangeness kind of comes out. Mm -hmm. What do you personally treasure about your own relationship with, with your my son? son. Mm -hmm. Oh God, everything. What, what I probably treasure the most is that my son and I throughout, and I was a single parent for a time. So I know what that feels like for a number of years. I was a single parent with one son, one child. Um, so there was that sense of the two of us against the world. But um, his father was also involved. But the fact that he is a mature adult and a father himself, and yet our bond is still so strong and so deep, I feel incredibly grateful and incredibly lucky I know some, I have friends who are estranged from their adult children or have very difficult relationships with them. And that's just never been the case with me and Clay. I'm very lucky um, in that sense. So I, I'm grateful for it every single day, even though it's hard that he lives so far away. That's. And that's one of those surrender things because I don't, you know, in his soul, he's Italian. My California kid, 
<laughs> somehow turned into an Italian. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but he's very much at home there and has a beautiful life there. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You have in your book talking about how dogs can connect and communicate with humans. Right. How do you feel personally that dogs can communicate to us or try to communicate to us? You know, it's funny. I've, I had a dog in the past. I don't have a dog currently. And Charlie, the dog in the book is based on a real Charlie who belongs to a dear friend of mine. Um, and I just tapped into some human animal connection knowledge when I was writing the book that I hadn't planned, that I didn't even know I knew, but felt really authentic to me. So I can't actually wait to get a dog. I'm, I'm <laughs> at this point so longing for a dog, um, and we will, because I, I think that that bond of love also extends. I mean, Charlie knows stuff, as Jonah says in the book, Charlie knows stuff that people don't. And I believe that to be true. I'm a dog mama. I've always had a dog. And yeah. our dog, Jack, that we have now, he always knows when someone's upset or hurting because he'll come up and give you a big bear hug, like paws on your shoulder, head, just leaning in like a full human yeah. hug. <laughs> he just knows. And he comes right up and it's instantaneous. Makes yeah. It makes so much sense. And I really... The bond with Jonah and Charlie in the book is just, and Charlie the dog really, in a sense, is the hero of this book. Um, unwittingly dragging Jonah along, but um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, there are no words. And I didn't know when I started out writing this book what a key role Charlie would play. And he just, and that's the wonder of writing fiction. He just grew and grew and became more and more important. And I loved that. That was fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You do both plays, you write plays and you write novels. What are the differences you've seen in the creative process between the two? Um, so much in the execution, because when you write a play, you're writing, it is, what's similar is that you're creating a world. Mm -hmm. But in a play, as a playwright, you are writing dialogue between the characters and you're writing stage directions for lighting, set design, mood, feeling, music. And the actors, inhabit the characters. So they are the body of the character. So what you would do with description in a novel or a story in any fiction is you can go inside their heads. When you're writing a play, the actor embodies that, that person. So for me, I, I've always wanted to write novels really more than anything. And, and 
I also loved writing plays, but at a certain point I got frustrated because I really wanted to be inside the minds and the bodies and the lives and see the world and be able to express the world through the eyes and bodies and minds of my characters, which I could never do in a play. So that it's a huge difference, really. Mm -hmm. I love the whole way that you explained that of like the character is embodying what you have on the paper with that feeling and that emotion that as a writer, your essence is to create that flow and feel and setting for the reader. Yeah. 